Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Tom, we got to get right to it today because Jared Correa is here and in the world of legal podcasting, that's a pretty big deal. Oh, Oh. really? (laughs) I thought you were going to say because he tends to prattle on, but yeah, uh, yeah, let's dive in. Yeah, no, that's, it's a, that's true, <laughs> Jared. It, I, it is a small pond, but you are a big fish. Let's <laughs> let's say it. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank cool. you. All right. Hey, so since uh, well, I, I will intro you formally in a minute, but um, yeah, I was fine. wondering if since and I mean this genuinely, I think you're a you're an outstanding podcaster. You got a lot of experience ah, in this. Um, so I was wondering if you could you could like spend sixty seconds coaching us and maybe providing some consulting feedback if if oh you're my up for God, it. God, for like your podcast? Yeah. Oh like, yeah. You guys yeah, yeah, are yeah. good. And I like, haven't. Tom, this Tom's is... got a yacht rock podcast. Like, mm-hmm. what tips do you guys need? Well, I think our I think our podcast is is good. Um, but I I don't think our opening is any good. <laughs> so, oh, you mean this opening? Is well, this, this is non- better than normal. <laughs> You can see I how like much this. thought we, we just like dive into it. This is great, yeah, this, actually, this is a good. This is what you would call. Like we we don't need an intro. <laughs> yeah, right. This is this is the cold open, as as yeah. they say in the business. Yeah. Um, but, but we, I that's our go to. But we usually it's it's usually worse than this. And Tom, I don't know how you feel about this, but the way I the way we usually would open a show is I would I would come on, I would say welcome to the you know welcome to the podcast. I'm Jay Harrington. Tom, uh, Tom, Tom Nixon is here as well. Hi, Tom. And then I'd say something like, uh, Hey Tom, did you see that Taylor Swift was at the football game last night? And, uh, or what do you think about those Michigan Wolverines? And that that's it. And then we're just like, okay, let's, I guess we'll talk about our topic now. So my question is not critique our, our open, but like, what do you like in a podcast opening? I mean, do you have, do you think there's a kind of a, a formula or a best practice or I don't know if you've thought about this. Yeah, I have some thoughts on this. Okay. That's about everything. Um, I'm glad you brought up Taylor Swift. I don't hear enough about that in my house constantly. <laughs> um, so I like the music, the opening music. And if you got the right opening theme song, like, I don't know, maybe a Kenny Loggins song or something like that, Tom, now you we're just talking. like flow right into that. You're in good shape. Um, I like running jokes. So like, I, when I do my podcast intro, not that I do this perfectly, um, I always have like three or four running jokes that I mm-hmm. use and I mm-hmm. change it up every time. I just love that. And I think that is probably based on like, <clears throat> I can't remember which TV shows it was, but I remember that being thematic in some TV shows in like the 70s or 80s where they had like a running gag and they just change it up slightly every week. I like yeah. the Simpsons couch gag, that kind of thing. Mm. Um I like that because I feel like it kind of centers people before you get into the action. So I guess like those are the only two things I would say that I like. But I like I like your podcast. I think you guys do a great job. Don't, look, don't change anything. All right, all right. More Tom. Swift. What do you, Tom? What do you think? Do you, does that does that did I take you by surprise there? Or I mean, do you do you agree? I mean, I just thought we. Tom, we do you think our intro is bad? Well, no, no. I we 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 talk so much about in our writing, like the need to have like that. You know, a lot of thought and rigor goes into how do you yeah. immediately grab attention and like hold it. And I just think that maybe Tom, just something for us to talk about is are we doing that with our podcast? I just I don't know. And and 
I'm interested in your thoughts. We can talk about that later, but just something to to yeah. raise. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think Jared's on to something by starting every episode with a Yacht Rock song, like he suggested. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> so, wait, that's the wrong podcast. But yes, oh, I agree. So what's going to be interesting to see is do we follow through on this? Because we absolutely need to. No. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> look at that. That's a good segue, Tom. You're the king of the segues. I, I am, All right, yes. so let's get into the substance of today's show. Um, so, Jared, for those who don't know, uh, is the founder and CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, and he's also the host of the Legal Toolkit and On the Road podcasts, uh, which I highly recommend. So, Jared, welcome. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. Post yeah. cold open, we're getting into it. I love it. Yeah, let's. Yeah, there we go. Here we go. Let's get into it. So, uh, so I, I'm excited to talk about this. Genuinely, the topic we're going to talk about today, because it's focused on a demographic that I think we don't focus on enough, uh, which is the solo and small firm, yeah. uh, small law firm. And I, I just did a little. I just spent two seconds googling this, and the the. <laughs> statistic I found was that 62% of lawyers are in solo practices or in small firms, which which surprised me. I mean, did you I, think I didn't, that was high? I, I thought it was high. Yeah, I didn't. I, I, I don't I almost know why. feel like it's low. Like, yeah, it, so it might many be of them out there. But anyway, yeah, this was this was from like 1987. So I don't know. No. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it, but it does make sense when, when you really give it some thought. So we're going to focus on, uh, growth, uh, and growth yeah. tactics and, and I think growth in terms of maturity, maybe within a firm that enables, you know, long-term growth and maturity in the sense of like just running a small firm, like a business is probably the best way to categorize it. And, and Jared, this is, I know a big area of focus for you and your consulting work, and mm -hmm. you have uh, broken this down into a three-step system for us and and we love frameworks. So that's great. Um, so yeah. we'll, we'll kind of run through place. it. So <laughs> do you, do you want to set the stage for us and just talk a little bit about, you know, what, what is the challenge um, that you know solo and small firms face that maybe their counterparts in big firms don't? Um, is it is it time, know how, resources? Like um, we're we're talking about kind of optimizing your practice to allow yeah. for growth, and and what is the fundamental challenge that they face relative to their counterparts in bigger firms? All of the above. No. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's interesting because I do work with a lot of solos and small firms, which, you know, I mean, the definition of a small firm is different for many people, but I don't know. Like generally speaking, a small firm is anything under 50, right? But I think we're probably talking more along the lines of like, I know, one to five attorneys at a firm. That's mm -hmm. like a small, small firm. Um, and I, I, you know, I work with big firms, like thousands of attorneys. I work with solos. Um, of that category. You know, I think it's not necessarily time, but I think it's that these attorneys don't feel like they have any time, which may or may not be true. And there's a whole host of reasons for that. They may not have any time because they're not efficient enough. They may not have any time because they're spending too much time on administrative stuff that they don't necessarily need to do because they don't know that you can use technology for that or employees for that type of thing. So there's a whole host of ways that they could save time that they're like not necessarily aware of. And so I think that's the biggest complaint. But if you drill down on that, I think it's like totally solvable. And then if you got more time to think about the business, you know, you can start making better decisions. You can start using data. You can start hiring up. And that's when the revenue really starts to grow, which is another way to buy yourself some time is with money. So 
I have a clarifying question. So yes. when we're talking about growth, yes. are we necessarily talking about scaling the business up from one to six, eight, ten attorneys or from five to 20? Or is there growth? Um, can you stay a solo in pursue growth? You can like, yeah, that's a good clarification point. I think I've got like people who want to stay solo. And like the solo thing is interesting because there's this whole like lawyer, non-lawyer thing that people do. So you could have a business with like 50 people that would be a solo law firm, which I think is like really weird, right? And somewhat disingenuous. If you were like, I'm a solo, but I have 49 staff people, it's not really a solo law firm, right? Mm -hmm. But if we're talking about like a hardcore, like solo attorney with like maybe one staff person, um, yeah, I think like most people want to grow the number of attorneys. And I think the reason you want to grow the number of attorneys is because that's how you access profit centers. So the way I look at this is every attorney is like pod. Every attorney is profit center. You know what it's going to cost you. You know what it's going to bring in. That's the real way to unlock growth as a lawyer. But Tom, to your point, if you were a solo and you wanted to stay a solo and you were willing to hire support staff, you can make a, you can make a lot of money. I've got clients who are solos who have like maybe two or three support staff and they're making like 5 million bucks a year which is, hey, not a bad lifestyle if you don't have to split that with anybody, right? That's a good gig. So that's a pathway too. So I think both are viable. Yeah, I was thinking I'm not an attorney, so but I'm just noticing other other yeah, good choice. There are I'm also not making five million dollars, um, <laughs> but <laughs> there are other sectors in which just sort of the modern nature of the world and the economy and maybe post COVID, it's just it's set up for people to maybe not do a lot of hiring and take on a bunch of partners, but maybe stay solo and create an ecosystem around them. Um, right. Something I'm trying to do where growth doesn't look like the number of employees here in the office growth has just different connotations. So I didn't know if that applied in this case. Well, this, this is interesting. So let me spin that out a little bit too, because like if you're a traditional law firm and what I mean by that is like, you're doing hourly billing, like most law firms do the way to unlock the growth is to add the other attorneys, because there's going to come a point where you're capped out. You can only work so many hours. So how do you gain more money? Well, you hire somebody else and you pay them like $120,000 and you bill them out at X and you know they can make like $400,000 a year, which means your profit every time you hire somebody is going to be an extra 300K. So every time you hire somebody, you add 300K to the bottom line. If you have like a subscription-based law practice or you're doing flat fees or you're selling like legal products, then the top is off a little bit. And you don't have to build the business in the same way. You could sell those products. You could sell those services in a different way. And then you have more ability to make more money as a solo person or using technology or automation. So I think that's an interesting point. There's not one way to do it. But I will tell you that most of the law firms I talk to are still like traditional hourly based law firms. And if you do it that way, you got to maximize your efficiency and hire up to make the money you want to make, in my experience. Yeah, I agree. I think it's overwhelming majority are still kind of in that traditional model. And, and I mean, it, it works, yeah, right? I mean, it's it's yeah. safe. And um, so let's uh, maybe let's just kind of focus our conversation on on that type of firm for, for today's sure. purposes. Um, yeah. So uh, step one, kind of as a firm who might be just operating, but maybe not, you know, they think they can probably squeeze more profits out of the business. They want to set this foundation for growth. Like what would step one be for a firm like that? Oh, workflows and processes mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. a doubt. Because most of these law firms are, so like <clears throat> every law firm has got workflows and processes they use. 
most of them are doing so or utilizing those unconsciously. And most of them, it's stuck in the attorney's heads. Like no one else knows what's happening. So you get a, a partner, a managing partner, a managing attorney is going to come out of their office and be like, hey, you screwed this up, Teresa. And Teresa's like, what did I screw up? I don't even know what's going on here. <laughs> but you're like, clearly it's step seven, but no one knows what step seven is. So without that framework, it's really hard to get to any level of efficiency. And I had like when the pandemic started, by the way, not to digress too much, but this is why consulting is great because like there could be crazy natural disasters happening, pandemics, the business is still good. Things are doing great. People are like, hey, I want to do even better. Like it's a good gig in all seriousness. <laughs> um, so whenever anything's happened, I just get to talk to people. Um, but when the pandemic hit, people were like, oh my God, no one wants to touch my pen. No one wants to come into my office anymore. Like, what do I do? And they're like, I, I feel like I need something. And the something was like processes, workflow. So you need a client journey that is digital and not in-person based, like every law firm client journey was before this. So now over the last like three years, I start having people come to me and be like, hey, not I'm just confused and I don't know why. They're like, oh, I need workflows. I need processes. So drilling down into that is something I really like to do. So that dovetails with the fact that that's really the first thing you have to do, because like if you don't have plans, workflows, processes in place, you can't communicate that to people and then you can never delegate. And that's how you really start to make money. Yeah. Um, and I think it also can extend beyond this. I mean, I think back to my days practicing law, um, you know, to the extent that you want to hire and and have a highly uh, high performing team, even creating processes and systems and documenting them around the, the underlying legal work is very important too. And I, maybe right. you weren't excluding that, but I'm, I just, even, I think no, you're sometimes, right. yeah. sometimes I, I, um, I'll, I'll run into attorneys and they'll say like, yeah, I get that. You know, how, here's how we create an engagement letter. Here's how we open a file, like all that needs to be, but it's, it goes, can go beyond that. Like, how do we do a transaction? Like, what are the steps there? Everyone thinks it's bespoke every time, but it's really not. I mean, I, everything can be reduced to some sort of system or checklist. If you really dig into it maybe not you know all of it but if you can get your team operating according to a playbook with 80 percent of the various scenarios that you're going to run into in every case or deal then you're going to be a lot better performing and make lots less mistakes i'm glad you brought this up because like i kind of view there as being like four different types of workflows in law firms so there's the intake workflow which is the client journey there's a case workflow which you talked about and then these, the, there are these administrative workflows that not are not necessarily like straight lines, but more like, hey, if the toner runs out in the copier, how do we replace it? Mm -hmm. Is it a fire drill or like, do we have a process for that? And then I also like it when law firms have what I would call closing workflows. So case closes, what happens then? Like, do you need to do disbursements? Do you need to reach out to the client? What does your remarketing campaign look like so you can get referrals from that person? So you're right. There's like multiple different workflows that you have to, re that you have to apply. And the case workflows are honestly maybe the most important if we're talking about making more space to do more work. Yeah. Yeah. If you ever want to build a team and grow your practice, that's really important. Whether you're in a big firm or a small firm, honestly. Yes. Right. Any firm. Mm -hmm. So as you build that team, though, and you're you're making those hires that you mentioned, so you establish yeah. these workflows and processes, do you find it's, well, first of all, are you advocating that then those processes are shared and followed by everyone? Oh, yeah. And is that ever a challenge? Because I, I, I see a yeah. lot of law firms that look like <laughs> just a bunch of solo practitioners who happen to show up at the same office every week. 
oh my god right like it's really funny that like there are some law so that there the term for the technical term for that is professional association which is like a lot of states don't really allow you to do that or they disincentivize you from doing that like in massachusetts for example um if you are like 12 solo attorneys kind of working in a pod together on a daily basis and someone brings a malpractice claim against one of you like it's going to go against everybody because you appear mm -hmm. as if you're firm to everybody uh, mm -hmm. who's not who, who's like an outside uh viewer of what you do um so i think that's hard to i think that's hard to do and unwise from ethics perspective just to be like the solo attorneys who are randomly grouped together well i'm However, describing actually jared i'm describing the actual firm but every attorney oh, a firm out, that actually a real kill, firm that actually they like all that, have yeah. their own processes they might do everything a little bit differently so how, are you advocating though that they create some uniformity within the firm that says there is a process we should all follow the process that was a that was a deep cut for you tom i went off the grid a little bit there <laughs> that was like that was like a poco b-side just for okay. you now we're talking um, all right ideally yeah you want like everybody to be following the same workflows across the firm in practice does that actually happen <laughs> no <laughs> but i suggest that like if you want to grow in an expedient way and a way that's sustainable you do that so the way i see that breaking down is and now i've seen some firms that are eat where you kill and it's like three four five attorneys and they can actually all agree on this stuff and they start utilizing workflows the other thing I would say is that sometimes in cases like that, like if it's a general practice firm, sometimes there's three attorneys that have one case type and they're in that pod. Sometimes there's four attorneys that have another case type and they're in that pod. So they develop some of their own workflows, but then some of the generic stuff they're using together, like the intake thing. Um, I often see that breaking down across like generational issues rather than like lawyers not being willing to work on processes together. So usually what happens is there's somebody who's like 68 in the firm and there's four other attorneys who are like 48 and the 68 year old is like, I'm not doing this. <laughs> like I'm going to retire in seven years. I don't care. <laughs> right. And then the 48 year old attorney is like, Hey, come on, Leon, we got to do this together. And he just doesn't care. So like, ideally it's everybody, but sometimes you allow people to opt out. And, you know, as much as as much as I hate to say it, it's like this dude's going to retire one day or he's going to pass out on his desk one day and that'll be the end of it. And you just wait it out. So not to get morbid on you guys, but it is Friday the 13th as we're recording this. So, <laughs> yeah. And I'll, I'll just share an anecdote uh, where I've seen this work really well. Um, so I have a client. It's a sort of high stakes, sophisticated um, commercial litigation firm, small as we've as we've defined that term. And very successful and very, um, you know, just very dynamic firm. And it, it really is coming from the top. Uh, you know, there there is uh, the, the, you know, the founder of the firm who has created a culture of this is how we do things. Um, and there's accountability. I mean, to the point where, you know, as a vendor to that firm, like I am integrated into their systems, their project management oh, software. Awesome. Yeah. And like, there's no, you know, I, I would try to, because I'm like, I don't know if I really want to be integrated into your project management <laughs> software, but he insists on it. You know what I mean? And I'm like, all right, I get the, you know, I get the point. I guess I'm in. So, and, and I can see it, you know, working with any number of their people, like it's all 
in there's just systems around everything and it's impressive and i think it's it's how they perform at such a high level at least it's very much responsible uh, to to a great extent responsible for that success what's interesting so like to tom's point like sometimes there is truly like a problem where there's like no chief and nobody is mm-hmm. like in a position where they can make a call and be like i'm going to do that but then in some firms like smaller firms like this you've got some people who are like you know um, Julie is really good at the managing side of stuff. So her caseload is going to be reduced. She's going to do the firm management, KPIs, processes, hiring, that kind of thing. And everybody else is going to work a little bit more and they come together to an agreement. But like, it's funny, every firm is different, which is why the law firms talk to me all the time. They're like, hey, um, I got this problem. Can you just email me a checklist with the answer? And I'm like, no, man, there's no like law firm in a box. Like every firm is like really different. So you got to analyze what's going on and like try to work in that construct. Yeah. Cool. Do you have a, do you have a favorite software to manage processes and systems? (laughs) I do. Well, I guess like I have a favorite combination of softwares. Mm -hmm. Am I like, am I doing the lawyer thing where I say it depends? (laughs) Well, not really. So like, I think you, so the problem is like case management softwares are out there, right? Like mm-hmm. Clio in my case and tools like that. And you would think they'd be great at workflows, but they're not. Um, I like workflow management tools mm-hmm. like Trello, Notion, uh, Asana. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a new one out called Task Aid, which is AI mm-hmm. uh, influenced task management, which is great. And I like how those flow. I like how they're automated. But there's, but the case management stuff, which is ideally where this would be, like they don't really do a good job of it. So what I would probably do is like integrate a tool like that with my case management software and then run my tasks through there and then just have them populate in the case management calendar. That's mm-hmm. how I would do it. If yeah. It were me. Um, that, there's, there's that's what I've seen. That's what I've seen. Quickly, there's something called legal boards out there, hmm. which is kind of like a knockoff of Notion and all mm-hmm. these other tools but it integrates directly with Clio in my case and some of these other products, which is appealing to people because they don't have to pay to integrate it through a bridging software of some kind. But like, I probably want to use best in class, but um, they're adding features. We'll see where they get. But yeah, I think task management software plus case management software. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just didn't want to forget that. No, no. I All I was going to do is say that that's, that's what I've seen people do when it's worked well, that integration you're describing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, like, I, if I'm going to do workflows right, I want a really robust workflow tool. And I don't think, like, the traditional legal tech tools have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agree. All right. So if step one is establishing those workflows and processes and getting the software in place, what's step two, Jared? Ah, uh, yes. Hiring. So I think if you can delegate, then you get the people to delegate to. And there are, like, two types of people to delegate to. Um, billers, broadly describing attorneys and paralegals, and then staff who, so as I said before, I view the billers as like profit centers. Like, (laughs) you know, it's funny. I have some clients in the Midwest, right? And they're like, can I swear on your podcast or no? I won't if I can't. Sure. Okay. So I have this guy that I work with in the Midwest and he's like, you're from the East coast, right? He's like, I got a question and I want the asshole's perspective. And that's me. <laughs> <laughs> so I think of this like from a money standpoint. So every hire that the firm makes, I'm like, okay, how much are we paying this person? And when we're hiring that person, like what's the lowest floor that we can start on? So we have an ability to go up 
and to provide them raises or incentives as we move forward. I'm always looking for the lowest number. And then we try to figure out, okay, like how much work do you have for this person that you can hand over today? How much work can you generate for this person that you don't have right now? And then how much work can this person generate for themselves? And we put that all together in a soup and we figure out the, what the profitability is. So I want each attorney at whatever level that attorney is, like senior associate, regular associate, non-equity partner, to be a profit center in some way. So you're paid X, you make Y. And then that is something that's replicable. So I could plug in any other attorney into that role, know that if I get them the work, I can make that much money off of each of them. And that's a really easy way to grow. Cause like I said before, okay, you plug in that attorney, it's another $300,000. You plug in the next attorney in that category, it's another $300,000. Same thing with paralegals, by the way, the math is just different and they're not going to generate their own work, but that's fine. Like there's a place for paralegals in law firms as well. Now with the staff, I think it's a little bit different because if you hire like a client service coordinator, for example, they don't do any billing. There's no direct revenue that they generate. However, they can do things to influence revenue. And when I talk about uh, KPIs, analytics with people, like this is the new term, like revenue influence. What, what kind of revenue does this person influence? Mm -hmm. So a great client services coordinator probably means that you're going to convert more clients from leads. It probably means that you're going to convert more clients from leads quicker. It may mean that you collect information for a case faster, which moves the case along quicker. And if you can do all those things, then that person can influence revenue in a significant way as well. Now, it may be a little more ad hoc in terms of figuring that out. Like you may not be able to drill down to the numbers as effectively as you could when you're looking at billers. But let's say you hire a client service coordinator for like $50,000. Like you could think of an array of ways that that person could make her money back for you. So that's kind of the way I look at the hires in the firm. And so I think to unlock the most potential revenue, like at some point, if you're solo, you need to look at hiring other attorneys, especially if you're in that billable hour model, which limits the amount of money you can make because it limits the amount of hours you can bill. All right. That, that all makes sense. I got a couple of questions and this kind of goes back to my own experience being yeah. a small law firm founder. Um, so I, this is maybe more of an observation than a question, but I think there's probably a question in here. I, I think that a lot of lawyers in large part because they oftentimes don't have a really good handle on the financial aspect of their business, right? They just sort of, you know, money's coming in, money's going out, they're paying themselves distributions. Right. Like, you know, it, it seems it, to be going so well. Right. They don't really know. If you were to ask them like, hey, produce a, you know, your profit and loss statement or, you know, what's your balance sheet look like? Or, you know, what is, what are you profitable? They don't necessarily know uh, that all that well. So right. one thing I think that it comes as a result of that is that they have a tendency to overestimate the profitability of a new hire, especially a biller. And they don't, you know, it's like, you know, the glass half full or um, looking on the bright side of things, but they don't anticipate how much time they're going to write off or they, uh, for that, that person's billable time. Um, they don't have a handle on like the expenses associated with a new employee, or they uh, overestimate the amount of work that that person will either bring over from where they were at before, or will bring in, you know, as a, as a new hire. And 
So I don't know. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, and there's any way to like, if there's any benchmarks as to what should like a profitability on a new hire, a new biller mm. be, or I, I don't. How do you talk to clients about that? And maybe you don't see that, but I just I I, I, do. I feel like I see it all. I I I experienced it, and I feel like I see it in some of my clients. No, you're right. Like lawyers overestimate everything. The mm-hmm. other thing they overestimate is when we're doing revenue projections. I'm like, hey, how much is each one of your cases worth? And they yeah. overestimate by like 75%. Yeah. Wishful <laughs> thinking at its best. Right. Um, yeah. So generally speaking, like you'll see figures out there like, okay, if you make a hire, you get the salary and it's 1.2x for the mm-hmm. benefits, which yeah, mm-hmm. sometimes that's true and sometimes that's not. Mm-hmm. So I try to get as granular as possible in the expenses and I go through like, okay, let's figure out everything that you're going to pay. And then the other thing that you mentioned, okay, let's figure out what the training time is going to look like. Mm -hmm. How much time are you going to spend with this person? And then that doesn't necessarily come off of their profitability. It comes off of yours. So how do you make that money back? Are you okay with reducing your profitability in the short term to be able to onboard someone with the thesis that you're going to make you more money over time and it'll be easier to onboard the next person? And then I I also do like multiple scenarios. I do this with hiring. I do this with revenue projections where I'm like, okay, let, let's look at like the worst case scenario, right? You're paying this person X. Like what if you had a really bad year? Like how much would you lose? Mm-hmm. What's the break even look like? What is What does a case look like where you're crushing it? And just play with the numbers. Like it's fine because attorneys are always like, I just want an answer. And they hate it when I say there's maybe not an answer. It's all guesswork because that's what business is. So like, I think it's really important with this stuff that you're talking about, like mess around with the numbers, do different scenarios and lawyers will never do the numbers, right? Like I will be sitting on calls with clients. And I'll be like, okay, how much do you bill per hour? Uh, how many uh, hours do you think you can get this person? And I'm like, okay, 425 an hour times like 1600. This is the amount of money you can make from this person. They're like, oh my God. Like I just discovered like the theory of relativity. Right. I'm like, bro, I just multiplied two numbers together in Google. <laughs> <laughs> so like they don't want to do it. Yeah. No, <laughs> so they don't. Create, I mean, creating one scenario is hard enough, let alone creating three or four. Yeah. And just sometimes they just don't have the access to the data sometimes because everything's a mess on the financial side. I mean, I remember, I remember as a small firm, we were a a successful small firm. I mean, we were riding a wave of corporate restructuring. And so we just had more work that we could handle. Everything was good. And we were approached by, you know, a larger firm that was interested in acquiring us. And we weren't necessarily interested in that, but we thought, well, can't hurt to talk. Yeah, And then, but in order to talk, they sent this list of like financial due diligence. diligence. And I'm like, you know what? We're good. There's no way we're going to be able to pull this together. <laughs> like, we can't find this shit. No. <laughs> I don't even know what this means. <laughs> so anyway, right. I think it, I think if you, it, but that is, that does bring up a relevant point. Like if you, if you ever do as a small firm want to get acquired or have that conversation, like you do have to have this, this stuff in order. I mean, it's, it really oh. is critical. I talk to people about this stuff all the time. Like, and the process stuff is really important in that too. Like mm-hmm. the, the kind of firm that somebody's going to want to buy and not just like a firm necessarily, another lawyer or a law firm, but also like with alternative business structures available now, like that buyer could be like a software company as well. Mm-hmm. And they're going to want to see data. They're going to want to see numbers. They're going to want to see turnkey processes, like all that stuff. <laughs> so basically like, the buyer of a law firm is looking for all the stuff that lawyers don't do. <laughs> right. You mean like run it like a business? Right. Exactly. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. So if you, but if you can do that and you ever want to sell your firm, mm-hmm. then you're in a great position to like really profit off of that because most, most law firms sell for like one X gross mm-hmm. revenue. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because they're totally disorganized and they can't render numbers. But if you were able to do that stuff, you can get closer to like uh, maybe two or three X with there's nothing compared to like what a software company sells for, mm-hmm. but still better than most law firms. Yeah. We're sort of segueing into step three. Um, but before we do, Jay, was there a second uh, remark or question that came up that you wrote down? Oh, I, I well, just this out of my own curiosity, I don't think there's a black and white one right answer to this. But when you when it if it comes up with clients, Jared, do you recommend that they hire before they feel the pain of needing, you know, a, a new person or or do, they, do you feel like they should experience some pain of feeling you know, that bit of overwhelm before they actually go and commit to a new hire. It's funny. Like I tell people to hire before the pain, ideally, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because like, you don't want to get caught short. Like I've had people come up to me and they'd be like, you know, when you told me that I should start looking to hire six months ago, that was the right call. Now I'm totally screwed. But I, I do get this. I do get the notion of like, let's feel a little bit of pain because we want to figure out like what our need is to hire. Like the other thing I'll say is like, and this is sort of a, an in-between answer, but like if you're looking to hire somebody and you're not really feeling the crunch yet, that's a good time to figure out, okay, like, am I not, am I about to feel the crunch because I have too much work? Or is it because I'm not efficient enough? So I think the personal efficiency play comes in here as well. So if you're if you're like a true solo attorney, like how do you become so efficient that when you hire somebody, you're doing it out of like a real need rather than just because you're overwhelmed and you don't want to figure out how to work better? So mm-hmm. I think I think that's an interesting way to look at it too. So I tell people like if there's not like, if you're not like working like seven days a week, which some people are, you should hire at that point. Cause you got enough work to pass on to somebody. But if you're not at that stage yet, like work on your personal efficiency, work on the efficiency of yourself and the staff you have before you hire. So that person comes into a good environment. The other thing too, that people don't think about is that like, when you bring somebody on, like they're going to be affected by whatever culture you have currently. And if your culture is one where there's inefficiency and one where people are slacking off and, one where there are personality issues, like that's not going to be a great environment for the hire who's coming in. And the job market's so crazy right now that if somebody doesn't like their job, they go find another job in a week for like more money. Absolutely. All right. Well, to segue into uh, to step three here, you mentioned something, Jared, and you too, Jay, that um, law firms are notoriously bad at, but software companies are awesome at. And that's step three. So how do we get law firms to do what software companies do well, Jared, which is? Oh, my God. I love data. I talk about data all day. Um, from way back, like uh, I, I'm into sports as well. And so like the data revolution in sports has been fascinating to me. Mm. Like why do NBA teams shoot three pointers all the time? Not because it's a better product, but because it's a more valuable shot. <laughs> like it's the money just, ball. Yeah, it's all it's all it's ruined on... the NBA, but I digress. No, I agree. I agree. Like, can somebody just like clothesline Bill Lambeer for me, please? <laughs> yeah. Um... <laughs> I think that usually went the You're talking <laughs> they... to two Detroit guys. No, no. Here. I did it the right way. <laughs> <laughs> You're backwards. You must be from Boston or New York or something. <laughs> right. Correct. Um so, um, yeah, like the data collection stuff is complicated for lawyers, but they have a lot of data at their at their 
at their hands that they could utilize. So like the first step is collecting data. So if you've got a case management software, which we talked a little bit about, you've got data about your clients. If you're using a CRM, customer relationship management software for intake, you've got data about your leads. Um, if people are keeping time in a case management system or a time and billing system, you've got data about your staff, like the billers and the people who do other tasks as well. If you set up the workflow management system, you know how tasks are run in your firm, how long it takes to do something, how long it takes to get from one stage to another, how long it takes to open and close a case. So you've got all that stuff at your fingertips. And then you just need to render the data into a digestible format, which most people most people would look at and say like, okay, that's a KPI, like a key performance indicator for the firm. So we're going to try to figure out like what one number would be to define something that we want to achieve. That, that could be, for example, like a close rate for leads. Like of the wanted leads we have, what percentage of those leads are we closing? And then there's a number of different KPIs that you could render in the firm, and that has two distinct advantages. One is that, as we just talked about, if a law firm wants to get acquired at some point and wants to be an asset, and somebody's like, hey, now we're coming at you with due diligence, you don't want to be like, uh-oh, well, it was nice talking with you. You want to be able to, right, right. You want to be able to send the data over and be like, hey, take a look at this. The other piece of it is you start making fewer of those ad hoc decisions. Like Jay was talking about, like most law firms, when it comes to finances, they're like, oh, things seem to be going well. So if there's like a trend line that's going down or you're making less revenue or one of your practice areas is drying up or you lose a big referral source, they never know until it's too late. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the data, you can start making data-driven decisions and taking out the qualitative decision-making. I mean, it's the same thing with like hiring people and promoting people. Like most of those conversations are like, well, Jenny, I don't think you're very good at your job. And then Jenny's like, I disagree. I think I'm quite good at my job. <laughs> and then it's he said, she said, right? But if you had data and you were like, hey, Jenny, uh, the average attorney at this firm has a utilization rate of 57% and yours is 22%. You can't be like, nah, because that's what the data says. So using that stuff is really helpful for firms, but they almost never do it. And, and they have access to it. They can get it. Yeah, and it, it could be even, I mean, I, I think of it, you know, I usually have my marketing and business development hat on. And I mean, there's so many nuggets there. And it could be something so simple. Like even if you don't have currently have sophisticated um, software systems in place. And yeah. when I say sophisticated software systems, it's stuff that most firms can and should be using. And it's pretty simple. But yeah. even if you're doing something very old school, just going back through 18 months of, you know, sort of timekeeping or invoices and saying like, what which of these clients have I not heard from in the last like two months? And, yeah. and using that data to pick up the phone and call them and and generate some more work. I mean, it, it's simple. It's just looking backward to inform what you're going to be doing moving forward. And yeah, that's a great yeah. way to describe it. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I, I I I agree. I think this is a really important and overlooked thing. It's sort of like you get so caught up. I mean, it's all it's all boils down to you know just being so immersed in the business that you never really take a look at like you know what you should be when you're working on the business. To use the old cliche, um, and and I think you know you just need to carve carve some time to do that. It's so critically important. And if you have workflows and staff, you'll have more time to do that stuff. Yeah, sorry yeah. about the Bill and Beer crack, but uh, you know I I hate that guy. It's no, like, no. You you said what you said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't regret it. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's all right. I, uh, we don't regret celebrating the back-to-back championships either that came with the bad boys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we should start. fair. I deserve that. Although, can I don't we, know if we Can we compare start. championship counts? No, I thought no, no, that's no. what I was saying. I knew you were going to come back with that. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that right hook coming, Tom. I was trying yeah. to get you to duck. I led with my chin. <laughs> yeah, you did. You did. All right. So this brings us to uh, our favorite segment of uh, the podcast, which is me hitting mute and going to get a cup of coffee and you two spending a few minutes talking about uh, Yacht Rock. So, yeah, I mean, I, I want to tee it up at least. I'll have nothing to add, but I enjoy this segment. So <laughs> I'll just sip coffee and and uh, let you guys take over. Thank you, um, Tom. I was interested. In, so I was messaging you guys and I was like, hey, can country music artists create Yacht Rock? And you were like, here's a playlist with 173 songs. <laughs> nice <Yes>. work. <laughs> I called it uh, my Yacht Country playlist. Yes. Okay. And, uh, yes. Do you have questions? Yes. So like. Now we're in my wheelhouse. We got Yacht Rock, but then there are genres of yacht type of music. Is there like Yacht Bluegrass, Yacht Inside Deco, Yacht <laughs> Rap? Like how deep are uh, we going here? Because I don't yacht rap, yacht right? <laughs> plenty of yacht rap. <laughs> my, my, uh, I don't know if they're all fully sanctioned by the the folks who invented the term yacht rock, but there are some subsects. There's yacht uh, soul, there's yacht disco, and what I refer to as yacht country is actually known as southern yacht. Uh, but what really? interesting, yeah. So what's interesting though, you could look. Obviously, yacht rock was a you know a a later you know backward looking applied term to a genre that didn't exist at the right. time. But what's interesting is when you go back and look at artists in like the window of 78 to 84 and how many came out of their own comfort zone, like a Ronnie Millsap or even an Art Garfunkel or Dolly Parton or the Pointer Sisters, they were yeah. all doing things that sound like Yacht Rock. And for whatever reason, there was this genre and we people just didn't even realize it was happening at the time. So so Jay, stop me at any point, but no, no, I was actually like going to take over your podcast. Yes, I was going to jump in here. Cause I didn't, I, I, you know, if we, if we add country to the Venn diagram of yacht rock, I mean, I can get in on this perhaps. <laughs> yes. Let's do we it. can do, cause I am, I'm a big country fan and I'm, I'm interested whether some of these artists are yacht or not, not as we've, uh, as we've talked about before. So if we want to stick on that, I can, I can okay, jump in. So the first person I thought of, when I was thinking of yacht country was Eddie rabbit. Yes. I was listening to like Eddie. We were stuck in traffic. My daughter and I and driving my life away came on. I'm like, Oh, this is an appropriate song. And she was actually listening to it. And then he's got a, I love rainy night, which seems like just a yacht rock song to me. It's, it's very close. It is on my yacht country playlist. Uh, if you want true yacht rock from him though, suspicions by Eddie okay. rabbit is cut and dried yacht rock. So Really? Yeah. So okay. your instincts were correct there. And I also have, I love a rainy night on my yacht country playlist. So, yeah. Yes. Uh, Eddie rabbit, tragic story. Look it up on Wikipedia or don't, if you don't want yeah. to be depressed. Um, <laughs> Jay, what are your suggestions? Cause I didn't know you were a country guy. I am, but then I don't, I've never heard of Eddie rabbit. So I'm wondering oh, how listen, much. Listen to some Eddie rabbit. I, think I will. I will. Tom, like seventies and eighties, late seventies to mid eighties country would be like the yacht country era. Yeah. Yes, they referred okay. to. Okay, if you want another subgenre, it was something emerging at the time called country politan, which is uh, figures like Glenn Campbell, who were kind of country in their roots, but they 
remember the movie Urban Cowboy, Jay? So there was this yeah. sort of um, melding that was happening between sort of at the time they would call it black culture and white culture. And that's kind of where these things started to meet. And you saw it in the music of things like Country Politan, which is probably what this would be. Got it. Okay. Rhinestone Cowboy. Yep. Um, Rhinestone Cowboy. Yep. I mean, Southern Glenn, Nights. Right. Glenn Campbell was writing like existential country songs, not like. Hey, let's crack a beer and head out on like the pontoon bow. So <laughs> he was kind of interesting. Um, yeah. So Jay, I'll let you pop in here if you'd like. No, so, I, I really I don't like have a whole lot. Podcast. I don't, I, don't, I still don't think I have a lot to add. Okay. So okay. <laughs> no, but I do, I do have a question for Tom because Tom, you know, I, this is for those who are like, what in the hell are these guys talking about? <laughs> Which is probably, we rail. probably lost, we probably lost 99% of the audience by now, but that's but gained okay. another 10%. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, the right 10%. Tom has one of the leading yacht rock maybe the leading yacht rock podcasts in the world yeah am i being too grandiose is it the only one well few endeavor <laughs> to actually do a whole podcast about simply yacht rock but yeah we are one of a handful it's yeah. called out of the main if people want to check it out out of the main.com yeah. we had jared on as a guest so that that's awesome. why we're coming back to the topic okay oh. now uh, here can i just i have one question just thought of is, tom is there a book here i mean is there a oh. is there a yacht rock book and Totally if not, is. are you the one to write it? Um, geez, I am not the one to write it. It's interesting because Yacht Rock in its pure form is actually probably not what you think it is. And mm -hmm. I've come to discover that it was actually a term invented by someone uh, by the name of J.D. Riznar in, say, around 2005. And this is his genre. He did a whole web series spoofing kind of the music that we're talking about. He is writing a book, apparently, that's going to come out. Oh. I'm thinking 2024 about what Yacht Rock truly is. Well, you better get gone. Yeah. <laughs> you got to get out before him. Yeah. Um, may I have one more question, Jay? Yes. Yeah, please. Don't mind, if we've please. got the studio space to explore. We do. We do. Well, actually, two-part question. Jimmy Buffett, Tom, Yacht Rock, yay no. or nay? No, okay. definitely none of, not. None of his stuff. None of his stuff. Nope. Okay. It's what we'd call Marina Rock or Trop Rock. <laughs> okay. And then James Taylor is on your yacht playlist. My country, yacht, yacht country, country playlist, yeah. which is surprising to me in some ways, but yeah, also most, not. Mostly because I love James Taylor and I was looking for an excuse to put him into a playlist <laughs> that I would otherwise consider Yacht Rock. And he's not Yacht Rock. So okay. um, just okay. because we've got some acoustic guitars and a little bit of Southern jingle jangle in his music, he, he made his way, made well, perhaps may, erroneously. May I say that early James Taylor is kind of countrified and people, like if you listen to his first yeah. album, like a lot of those are like, country songs really exactly and then if you get into a tune like her town which he is a collaboration with jd souther um yep. that gets more yachty so yes yeah like early 80s james taylor and probably right. late 70s too like yep. when he made the record company move much more yacht rock stylings true true okay. true, true i should well, i should stop <laughs> yeah, well, we all should probably. This is bringing up yet another thing that we need to workshop. Jay, Closing. How, how do we close our podcast? I don't. I have no idea. But uh, the, the Yacht Rock podcast has a, a, a signature close. Jared, do you have a signature close for your podcast? No, I do a different close every time. I do a public service announcement. I say, "This is Jared Korea, reminding you that James Taylor is not a Yacht Rock guy." Just something. Like that. <laughs> and know. that's the podcast. See you guys there. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.